I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in. I'm sorry. I know there's a couple more, uh, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to jump in at this point. I want to I dive into the tension this morning of a, com, of a communal text, a radical communal text in a lonely world that a spirit-filled community forms around a new kingdom way defying the self-centered way of the world, that the world has a self-centered logic behind it, which creates social distance if submitted to, but the kingdom has a self-forgetting logic which paradoxically actually creates social bonds and intimacy. It actually connects us together in an interdependent way. See, how does, a, how does a lonely world read, receive, and engage a text like this, a picture like this, a community like this? And I'm not just assuming that our world is a lonely place. I'm actually consulting a vast and ever-growing data set that human beings, especially in this culture, in American culture, are increasingly self-identifying as lonely. Does that surprise you? No. Just within the last 18 months, you know, Cigna, Pew Research, and, and two others actually published these major research uh, uh, results, and each one of them, I say that over half now, over half of Americans identify as lonely. Uh, one of them says 52%, the other one 54%, the other one 56%, self-identify as lonely. And actually, the, the, you know, within people who self-identify as lonely, people actually test varying degrees of intensity of the experience of loneliness. So some people feel a little lonely, and some people feel really, really lonely, really, really isolated. And actually, the younger you get, the more intensity of loneliness you feel. That, that, you know, boomers are, test like a, a slight level of lonely, loneliness and then Generation X, Generation Y, millennials are like pretty lonely and then Generation Z, like 18 to 25, are like uh, desolately lonely. Feel uh, the, the, the percentage of them that do opt in to feeling lonely, feel it at an intense level. I have this theory that the, that the, the human heart actually drives media more than the other way around. Uh, so when you see when you see like movies or shows or 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 you know music or something getting like really really evil really crazy, some of the narrative is that people are actually being influenced by that media. I actually think it's it's a little bit more interdependent, maybe even the other way. That, that human hearts are already there, <laughs> we're already there, and we consume what we want, and and th- and stuff that that continues in darkness or or depravity isn't actually pushing us. We're actually already there. And it's just exposing something that's already there in the heart. And in the same way, TV shows uh, that do really well, TV shows that are really popular, I think they expose an unmet desire deep in the human experience and, and provide it for consumption. And I, I think some of the most successful, long-running, popular TV shows historically and today, I think most of them, what they do is they provide an ex- a, a picture, an experience of, of, of intimate, interdependent, energetic, lively, committed community with one another. And they offer it to a lonely world to be consumed by people who have an unmet core need. Can you, can you think of some TV shows that, that do that, that produce that? The classic is Cheers, right? This is like, yes, Cheers, yes, Cheers. 
The classic is cheers. Like whenever people refer to this thing that I'm talking about, like one of the first things is somebody says cheers. Self-disclosure, I've never seen an episode of cheers in my life. I'm sure it's good. Whoever just yelled, I don't mean to break relationship with you, whoever just yelled. Um, but can you think of some? What are, what are more? Friends. Friends, yes, I'll be there for you. Be there for me too. Yes. That's a classic. Seinfeld, yes. Yes. Lost? Did somebody say lost? What are we? It, it does do that. It does do that, I guess. It does do that. What was that? Martin? I've never heard of this. <laughs> totally. I was trying to think of more this morning. That We have so many TV shows, guys. We could do this for days. New Girl. New Girl does that in the... Well, yeah, New Girl does that. I can't hear. Golden Girls. Yes. Yes. We're just thinking of all of them. We're just thinking of all of them. We're just thinking of all of them. The Office, Parks and Rec. What those do is they say, they say, look at this vibrant, life-giving, interconnected, life-on-life, doing-life-together community in the workplace. This is what it looks like in the workplace. And then we all watch it because our workplaces aren't as good. And we think, I want, I want that work. That's, I, I want to be with people that way. I want to I have fun at my job that way. You might think your boss is Michael Scott, but the, the job isn't that job. You know, the, the community isn't that community. There's a show that, that, that just, just came out this year. I like half watched it the other night where there's a, I don't even remember what it's called, but it's a, there's just a bunch of single parents that, that it's like brand new, I think. And uh, they, is it called Single Parents? How original. <laughs> and they all put their kids in the same, you know, school or daycare or whatever, and they all drop their kids off, and then they're all, like, best friends, you know, and they, like, help each other out, and they, like, walk in. But they're vi- all, like, very different people. They're all super, super different people. But they're, like, doing life together. See, you know, they see each other daily. They see each other daily. They meet each other's needs. They celebrate each other's wins. They bear one another's burdens. They fight through hard things. They walk through conflict with one another. They exemplify commitment to one another. And then we're like, we watch it, and we're like, yes! And then we turn it off, and we're like, oh, man, where's... Do I have that? Do I, I want that. I want that. I want, I want something like that. The va- and I spent some time this week reading this, this classic book. It's, a little, it's slightly outdated now, but it's called Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam. And it's about the, the premise of the book. It's this thick, like, 500-page book. And the, the premise of the whole book is the decline of social capital and social communities in American society. And, starting, and, and looking from, like, the 19... Even all the way back to, like, the 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s, all the way forward, and watching, like, the peak of, like, social capital and civic engagement and communities with one another, and then watching a steep, steep, steep decline leading up to now, and then trying to d- diagnose what that is. And he draws a lot of conclusions in in his research, uh, uh, Robert Putnam does, but one of the conclusions that he draws about the primary source of the death of social bonds and social capital was the invention of the television. The very thing that we go to to get a taste of an unmet core need might actually be killing the possibility of that core need being met. And we come, we come from that location, from that environment, from the, the escalating 
uh, uh, ubiquitous experience of loneliness in our time. They're starting to call it a health crisis, a mental health crisis in our time of loneliness. And we come to a picture of community like this. And we want, we want more. We want more. We're inspired by it. We're challenged by it. We're paralyzed by it, confused by it. I've read this t- text so many times, and every time I read, you know, sometimes I'm reading it, and I'm like, I think I'm seeing a glimpse of that. I think, I'm, I think I'm experiencing a glimpse of that. And sometimes I read it, and I'm like, gosh, I don't have anything close to that. And sometimes I read it, and I think, is this possible? And sometimes I read it, and I think, this is amazing. And sometimes I read it, and I think, I'm so frustrated. Why can't, why can't I? What's, what is it about me that's hindering this kind of community from happening? Why don't we see this? I do think there are, I do think there are barriers, uh, uh, transcultural barriers that we, that we experience that are barriers to this kind of commu- kingdom community that we're affected by. And then I think there's actually like real in, in the moment, in time, in place, cultural barriers that affect us that we maybe are influenced by to, to a degree that we're, we're not even aware of. I think I just want to highlight two this morning. One of them is individualism. That that and and these beliefs are like these are these are beliefs or narratives that try to describe human flourishing, human thriving, and how to get there. Individualism is a belief that human thriving comes through self-sufficiency. That life is best if it's about you. And the factors that matter are in life are the ones that affect you, your success, your failures, your plans, your past, your future, and no one else's. And thriving, what it means to thrive or flourish on individualist terms is to have complete power and control over your own life and circumstances, to be, as they say, independent or anti-dependent, to come to a place of complete independence. The first, the first house, you know, my, my wife and I bought, um, you know, when we were up in Illinois, we moved into, we moved into a neighborhood uh, that was probably 60 to 75% Section 8 housing. And there, was, and there was a lot of need in that community, but at the same time, there was a lot of, like, shared life in, in that community that we hadn't experienced before. And we moved in, and when we moved in, I didn't have a lawnmower. I didn't have a lawnmower. And there were a few things. There was like there there was a there there was just a general ethic in that that neighborhood of uh, uh, of to a degree sharing. But there were a couple staple items that were like the, this actually plays out very clearly in a couple ways. One of them was di- the neighbor directly to the right of us, Miss Gwyn, always had these icy cups uh, that had different flavors in them that anybody in the neighborhood could buy for, a qu- I think it was a quarter, I think it was one quarter. And so she wasn't trying to you know, make her own retirement off these ices. She was, she was just like, at cost, one quarter, she would make all these ices on the weekend and then hold them in her freezer. And people could come and buy them for like a quarter. Well, over time, I started learning that, that um, very few other people had in their homes anywhere in the neighborhood popsicles or ice cream. Because Miss Gwen provided for the whole neighborhood... <laughs> all of your dessert desires with these ices, these quarter ices. Why do I, does it need to be on my grocery list? It doesn't need to. The kids can just go down the block, see Miss Gwen, get their ices. We're good to go right after dinner. We're fine. The other one was there was one lawnmower 
there was one lawnmower in the whole neighborhood, this push mower. And I know, I, to this day, I have no idea who owned it. I don't know who owned it. And, the, and there, you know, kids, like usually like teenage kids, would just take turns going to find it and then mowing you know, all the houses in the neighborhood for like a few bucks or whatever. So whenever it's your time to, to mow the yard, you don't know where the mowers are, but they usually know where it is, somebody's house on the, on the, you know, within like a three-block radius. They'll go find it. They'll mow their, your yard for a few bucks or whatever. So, you know, for the first two or three months we were in that neighborhood, I'd be like, oh, my gosh, the grass is so tall. I need to mow the yard. And I didn't want to ask them to mow the yard because I don't want to be like a burden to anyone or needy in any way. So I'll mow the yard. Um, and then, but then I'd have to go find the mower. So I'd, I'd go to Miss Gwen. I'd say, do you know where the mower is? I don't have it. I think Raheem had it last time I checked. I go to Raheem's house. He's like, I don't have it. I had it three or four days ago. They came and got it. I think they went down the block and did, you know, so-and-so's house. I'd go to their house, and they said, uh, I, I'm not sure if I have it or not. And they'd be sitting in their backyard. They didn't even know it was back there. You go get the lawnmower. You take it to your house. You mow your yard or whatever. And then you don't know where to put it because, again, you don't know who owns the lawnmower. So you just keep it until they just, like, you leave your gate unlocked, and they just come get it someday you don't even know when and you don't know where it goes off to and we did that for like two or three months but I started to be like I'm like frustrated by that like I want my own lawnmower I and I don't want to walk around talk to her I don't want to have to track it down I don't want it waste it's not very efficient use of my time I want to be able to just do it when I want to do it I want to like know that the mower is going to like work and like be good I don't want to burden anyone I don't want to be needy or anything uh, so I'm just going to get my own lawnmower. So I go and buy my own push lawnmower. And I got I to gotta tell you, I don't know. My goal here was independence a little bit. And I'm trying to think, I'm trying to serve the community here. I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to be needy. I don't want to... I don't want to... You know, I'm just, it's, it's bad for the community if I have to depend on them. So... so I just want to be independent here. I want to mow my own yard or whatever. So I go get the, lawn, the, lawn, the lawnmower. And I'm telling you, it took me probably two to three years to build the relational capital with my neighbors that I built in two months of just needing to go around and just be like, hey, do you have the lawnmower? Oh, how are your kids? How are your kids? How's, what's going on? You don't know where the lawnmower is? Well, that's, that's great. Here's what's happening in my house, your house, blah, blah, blah. And then go, go to the next place, talk with them, go to the next place, talk with them a little bit. And then I find the lawnmower. And then the kids are like, we'll come mow your house. And I get to know them a little bit. And, and suddenly what happened was what I intended to grow independence, I get my own lawnmower or whatever, actually created social distance. Like, try, just trying to, like, not be a burden. I don't want to, like, you know, be, you know, I don't want people to have to, I don't have to lean on people, them lean on me or whatever. It created social distance that I had to, like, figure out. I had to figure out how to gain that back with people somehow. You see, the ability to be in, in an individualist culture, you tell me if this is true, the ability to be independent, to function independently is seen as strong. But the need to be dependent on others, to lean on others, is actually seen as weak or weakness. And guys, the, the end goal of individualism, like if you do individualism right, if you do it correctly, you end up in isolation. That's the end product. That's the goal of individualism is loneliness, loneliness. And this individualism intensifies our pride to never tell people when we need something, when we're in need, 
to not tell our, sometimes our family, our best friends, because we don't want to seem weak or less than. And that individualism creates metrics of deserving and merit-based principles of giving. So even in our, even in our like, some of our communities, some of our contexts, we might think, we might see this passage and think, yeah, we want to share everything. We want to, we want to give. I want to, I want to sell my, I want to sell this and that, and then I'm going to have like a little bit more space to give and provide for need. But what are, what's the needs? What's the needs? We don't actually know because we don't tell each other when we have need, right? So we could like build up this massive benevolence fund and it'll go untapped because we don't even talk to each other about what we need. Because we want to be seen as independent, strong. We don't want to be seen as weak. And that gets intensified. And then even the people who would build up the courage to, to tell publicly, like either, either their community or, 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 or like the, the whole network or something, like I have this need or, you know, I, I, you know whatever. Like if, if anybody has, is in their stewardship, has a little space, they feel called by God to meet this need. Sometimes on our end, we start to actually evaluate deservedness and merit-based giving. So of course they don't want to they, they don't want to be come forward with their needs and be subject to those kind of metrics right to that merit-based philosophy. We are in a cultural sea of individualism and yet our 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 own cultural locations within that sea actually affects us different. So some people actually come from uh, uh, cultures and ethnicities that actually already bend toward individualism. And some people don't actually come from those kinds of cultures, but we live in like a Western American environment and we're always trying to fight that, push that. So we even experience that in different levels, different degrees in the room. Individualism is a major barrier to this kind of com- community. And another one is consumerism. A belief about human thriving that is achieved based on acquisition based on buying more stuff, getting more stuff, upgrading the stuff you have, and not just so that you can be independent and self-sufficient like we, we talked about, but also that you can achieve value and identity and worth by brands. See, consumerism doesn't just affect the way that you use your resources. Consumerism doesn't just affect the way you use your resources. Consumerism hinders your ability to belong to anything. Because you won't just evaluate resources through consumerism. You'll start to evaluate human relationships and communities as products to be consumed. And you cannot consume and belong at the same time. It actually hinders our ability to even belong to one another in a meaningful way. This is why the technology that promises us more and more human connection only actually delivers us more and more distance from one another because that technology is designed with the assumptions of individualism and consumption. This is social media, guys. The, the, uh, I've, I've read like 15 articles this week that talked about how social media gave us the, prob- the promise of human bonding and actually delivers human isolation. And I, I'm experiencing that. I don't know about you, but like the, what was delivered to us to create human bonds and interconnectedness actually delivers distance from one another. And I actually think, based on the Robert Putnam thing that was published, the bowling alone, published all the way back in the year 2000, before all social media and internet kind of goes crazy, and, and he kind of actually predicted that this might happen. And the, and the younger you get, you experience more and more and more isolation. 
and I, I remember having a conversation with my brother when he was, my younger brother, when he was in, I mean, maybe he was a sophomore in high school or something, and and he was just, you know, he, he, was always, he was always playing video games. And I just remember talking with him about that and being like, don't you ever want to go and shoot hoops or like, get, you know, hop in the car and drive or something like that? And he said, to, to his defense, he said, he said, listen, I want to do that all the time. But if I choose to do that, I'll be by myself because all my friends are playing these video games. All of them. So if I want any version of human connection, I have to find it inside the internet on this video game. Because I, even if I, I agree with you actually, I wish I could go play basketball at the park, but nobody will be there. Nobody will be there. And the, there's like these little pseudo versions, these little hints of human connection, but they're not real and they actually create social distance. Individualism and consumerism can only create social distance and cannot coexist. Guys, individualism and consumerism cannot coexist with the way of the kingdom, with kingdom community, with interdependent, God-glorifying kingdom community. So how do we move toward that kingdom community? Well, I think there's, there's, there's values. There's even values that we've celebrated uh, in the life of the underground that carry us toward kingdom community, values like sharing, hospitality, giving, and simplicity. You see, sharing and hospitality are our protest against individualism. It is resistance against individualism. They had everything in common. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. They didn't even believe in ownership of anything, but they shared everything they have. There's no room for ownership in the kingdom of God. There's only room for stewardship. Stewardship of things that do not belong to you, they belong to another, and they are passing through your hands. The first week I was here in Tampa, we were helping, I think we were helping PJ and Charlene move. To their new house, and and one of the one of the people who was helping move was uh, Jordan Richardson, and Jordan had this big truck, this big like Nissan Titan, and uh, I, we were loaded up the back of the truck, and we got in the truck, and it was one of my first times interacting with with him a little bit, and and uh, it was just me and him in the truck. The truck was packed, and I said I said, man, this is a really cool truck. I love this truck, and he said he said yeah, it basically belongs to the underground. I drive it sometimes. <laughs> Because underground, he, he has one of the only like full-size trucks in the community. So people, and people know that. And people know like he's really open-handed with it. So people are like asking him all the time, we're moving, we're moving. Or we need to do this, or we need to do that. And so, and he was kind of like joking about it. Like, like yeah, like, like it just kind of belongs to the community. I drive it every once in a while at work. And he kind of laughed a little bit. But I was actually super inspired by that. I was like, dude, yeah, amen. And I, com- I, I was convinced at that moment. I was almost like led by him in that moment. Like, you're right, man. There's... We need more trucks, so I'm going to get a truck for the community. I'm going to get a truck. I need a full set. The, the community needs more trucks. You shouldn't carry this burden alone. I should carry this burden with you. We should, we should have more trucks around here. So I, I decide right then and there, for the sake of the community, I'm going to get a truck. I'm going to get a big truck. And everybody, it's like available to anyone. I get that truck, and within one week, somebody says, I'm moving. Can I use your truck? And I thought, but it's about my truck. It's my truck. <laughs> I don't even know you. Are you a good driver? 
Can we get somewhere relationally first before you ask me these questions? My truck. Whose truck? Whose truck? Whose? Me, my, I, whose? Whose, whose, whose? And guys, sharing is our protest to individualism, but hospitality is our protest to personal ownership of our house. Hospitality is protest against our ownership of our house, our time, our living room, our dining room, our guest room, your room. It all belongs to Jesus. And hospitality is, is water for the soul every time you're asked to host another to remind you, to remember again and again, this doesn't belong to me. This does not belong to me. I'm so grateful for this house. It belongs to Jesus. This porch belongs to Jesus. This backyard belongs to Jesus. This bathroom belongs to Jesus. My guest room belongs to him. My kid's room belongs to him. Whatever he needs. And when I'm reminded and I submit to that reminder and I open up my home for those who would come, Actually, the scripture even says sometimes you host angels unaware. Blessing and grace enters into your life that would be hindered if you take ownership of that space and don't crack it open for the grace and wonder of God. Don't you love that song? Our lives are not, uh, my life is not my own. To you I be. Am I breaking a social contract with you today singing? I sang the friends thing earlier. I did the friends thing. I felt like you were uncomfortable. Should I not do this? You love this. You love this song, right? My life is not my own. To you belong. I give myself. I give myself to you. But if you leave that abstract, you sing it all you want. But what about your house? What about your car? What about your room? What about your food? What about your time? What about your plans? What about your lawnmower? What about that brand new set of drills you just got from Home Depot? You're so excited about the next day somebody wants it. To you I belong, Jesus. I give myself away. I give it all away. I give myself to you. Your skills, your experiences, your knowledge, your ability, your time, your choices, your talents, you give it all. It's all on the table. I don't like talking about the tithe around here because it's not enough, actually. It's not enough. My whole life is on the table, actually, because he's asking for my whole life and yours too. When you relinquish your rights, you inherit. This is the paradox. When you let go of your rights, your ownership, you inherit intentional, interconnected community. But if you hold on to your rights and your ownership of your life, you actually hinder the possibility of intentional, interdependent community. You hinder yourself from meaningful relationships with others. And if sharing and hospitality are our protest to individualism, then giving is our protest to consumerism. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Anyone who had need. And from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and distributed to anyone who had need. And guys, giving is more than just money. It's those classic T's, that nice little alliteration, time, talent, and treasure. You can give time, talent, and treasure. But guys, let's not forget it's also about money. It is. 
Willie Jennings once said, matters, matters of money are inescapable. They are at the heart of discipleship. And money in this text, money in this community, will be used to destroy what money normally is used to create, distance and boundaries between people. Money is at the heart of discipleship and used here to destroy what money normally is used to create, distance and boundaries between people. Sharing and hospitality are our protest to individualism. Giving is our protest to consumerism. And guys, simplicity increases your capacity to do both. Isn't there a way to live simple that has nothing to do with the kingdom of God? And simplicity is becoming like a trend, right? Simplicity is like this cool thing now. And I think there's a whole lot of ways to pursue simplicity that just has nothing to do with the kingdom. Tiny house nation! minimalism, one fork, one spoon, you know, this, this whole thing. I think everybody's probably read the, the life-changing magic of tidying up because it was free at some point in time, like a whole bunch of people read that. It's just like, get rid of everything. Like, I think the premise of the book is like, whatever brings you joy, keep it. How do you have joy with like walls? Get rid of your walls, tear them down. Who needs them? Paint. Who needs paint on the walls? Just, I just was confused by the whole book. I just think the trend of simplicity can be concerning. And I just want to have a moment of like clarity with us. What do we mean when we say simplicity? What do we mean when we say like pursuing simplicity as a kingdom ethic? I think, I think the distinction is that our, what we mean by simplicity actually has very little to do with you. Minimalism and tiny house living has to do with like clearing up your own, it's about your mental health, your anxiety, it's about your ability to free up financial capacity to go on vacations and trips and travel and experience all of life. It's about freeing yourself from the shackles of maintaining too much in your life and having more mental space and clarity. It's about you, 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 you. But when we say simplicity, I think our value for simplicity is embedded in three kingdom ethics. One, simplicity is the precursor and the result of of an ethic of sharing. We live a simple life because I don't want to have to buy everything in the world because I want to position myself to lean on other people. It's a precursor to sharing. If If my life remains simple, I will lean on others. I'll put myself in a position to lean on others. And it's a result of the ethic of sharing. That if I'm sharing with enough people, I actually don't need everything in the whole world. It is a precursor and a result of the kingdom ethic of sharing. And simplicity is a precursor and a result of the kingdom ethic of giving. I want to live simple so that I have more financial capacity and resource capacity to give. And because I want to give so much, the result of that life is simplicity. You should, have a, you should have a giving line in your budget that, 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 that actually determines how much you can do other things, not a giving line that comes last based on what you have left. Our value for simplicity is a precursor to giving more and the result of an ethic of giving. So, so simplicity as a value actually combines the ethic of sharing and giving. And at the same time, the third one is that simplicity is a prophetic missional imperative for some people from a cultural location, not everyone. 
but, but from certain cultural locations, living simply in the midst of, of what anybody else would expect of your life is actually a prophetic word in time and space to those people. But that isn't actually true for, for people from like a lower socioeconomic status. They might live simply and it actually looks the same from anybody else in that socioeconomic status or cultural ethnicity. And, and then there's like, no, there, there, there's, it's actually dependent on where you're coming from. But the ethic of sharing and giving embeds transcendently all of it, all of it, a life of simplicity. And too often in our reading of this story, our view is clouded. It, do, it is with me so many times. Our view is clouded by the radical giving, the radical generosity, these things that we see, these external activities. Too often in our reading of this story, our view is clouded by spectacular giving, and we miss the spectacular joining, the miraculous bonding, the supernatural union of people who otherwise should not, would not, could not be in union with one another. And all of this for the purpose of creating and tightening the bonds of shared life, the pursuit of the beloved community. The worship team would come up. I want to close with a final thought. A spirit-filled people form intentional communities around kingdom logic, a contrast community to the way of the world. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I don't just want to be a part of a community like that. I don't want to just be in relationships like that, a beloved community, shared bonds, interdependent community. I want to see people added to our number daily. That just seems outlandish. People added to the numbers of that community daily. People being brought from death to life. Evil being broken. People entering in to the leadership of Jesus and the shared bonds of kingdom community daily. You see, the way that you commune with one another directly affects the fruitfulness of your mission. And this speaks to to a transcendent tension in the church and particularly around here. Community or mission? Community or mission? Which one is more important? Which one comes first? Which one is priority? Community or mission? I think the answer is yes. Both. You see, if someone were to surrender their life to Jesus in some way resulting from the missional faithfulness of your community, would that person find a community worth being a part of on the other side of that decision? Would that person find a spiritual home? Would that person find an acts to expression of the church? Regardless of how, how well we boldly proclaim the gospel, does the life of your community and mine continue to proclaim the gospel and to continue to be a signpost, a foretaste, a foreshadowing of the reality of the kingdom of God for those who would step into it. I think God wants to birth not just, guys, not just one big Acts 2 community. The 3,000 weren't going from house to house as 3,000 people. (laughs) 
That'd be some big houses, some big old houses. They were small collections. They were mini communities. They were a community of communities, a fellowship of these communities. And I think God wants to birth an Acts 2 expression of the church among those to whom you are called. Those that you love, those that you serve, the evil that you engage. Not just for you, not just for those who are found, not just those who are following him, but as part of the way in which he intends to pursue those who don't know him, those who are lost, those who are far. But he can't do that in you and through you if you are holding on to your rights. He can't do it through me if I'm holding on to mine. If I'm holding on to my view of my life, my resources, my schedule, my time, my house, if I'm holding on to my rights, my ownership, which is all a sham in the first place, he can't do it in me or through me. He can't do it in you or through you. If we hold on to our rights, we will discover isolation in the end and human distance. But if we give up our rights, if we relinquish our rights, our ownership over our whole life, not just little pieces of it, And we put it all on the table. We say, God, my whole life belongs to you. I withhold nothing from you. I have no rights. I have no ownership. To you I belong. Guys, we'll step into together meaningful kingdom community. And as we come to the table this morning, we remember that God gave everything first. He gave everything for us first. He gave up his rights first. And he asks us to withhold nothing from him because he first withheld nothing from us. Not even his own son. So this morning as we come to the table, we come with a vision given to us by God for the kingdom way of being together. A kingdom way that requires giving up, letting go of your rights, your ownership over all of your life at the front door. And that might feel dangerous. It might feel risky. You might have a whole lot of reasons why you haven't done that. But guys, he did that for you first. And he invites you to respond by giving your whole life. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. And when you eat it, you eat it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. He poured it out, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. And when you drink it, you drink it in remembrance of me. And just like that early church community, we take of these elements to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns. And so when you're ready, come the body and blood of Jesus given for you.